promise you at some point we'll get back to Mark chapter 5. We'll make it. But there's too much happening presently, I think, that we need to address. Isaiah 2, 22 says this, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? If you were here with us last week, we saw from Scripture what happens when a people turns from the God of heaven, the God of Scripture, the true and living God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And what you end up with, in a word, Scripture describes as idolatry, the gods of mankind's own making. And then the degeneration of what takes place to a people when that generation purposely forgets who God is, but beyond that, hates and rejects who He is in His nature. God's the one we found that sets nations up. He makes them great. He puts them down. Job 12, 23, and what we saw in Judges as well. The reason for God raising up those judges of the nation of Israel to remind them, to call them back to repentance once they forget and they have forgotten what took place in their life, what God had done. And I believe our nation, this nation you and I are a part of, was built on many of those biblical principles which we have come to enjoy. They were built by sinful man, people just like you and I, but what they understood was what a nation under God meant. They understood the importance of the order of those things. They were living in the midst of a nation and a ruler who was, in essence, above God in the name of King George. They lived that out. And when nations, and specifically ours, because that's where we live, decide to go down a road of forgetting who God is, declaring that He, in essence, is dead, or as earlier in this calendar year, one of the representatives made a comment during one of the debates, what any religious tradition describes as God's will is no longer a concern of this Congress, and however the context of that was, if you make a statement, all that says is God is no longer in high authority in people's minds. And once again, man declares himself as God and king. And I also believe further evidences of being true, the fact that God's will is of no concern, is what took place in the president's speech last Thursday. The purposeful or willful tactic used by most political elites and powerful people or would-be oligarchs by pitting one group of people against another within their own society. That, of course, being vaccinated and non-vaccinated peoples. I would encourage you not to fixate specifically on those specific terms, for I believe they will change eventually to something else in a later crisis causing the same effect, and that's fear. One of those terms at some point might be the term Christian, but I can assure you it won't be in the affirmation position of that statement. It will be in the other. And this is in line with, at least in my estimation, what I think we've been seeing for at least the last five or six years, where it finally shows up. It's been happening for quite a long time. But when a number of powerful people decide that the old America, if you will, the foundation of, of those principles needs to be destroyed. And a new principle, 
that being, I believe, more akin to the French Revolution, should be adopted with all its intersectionality, wokeism, or in essence, critical theory, those terms that are being used and the foundations that are being laid to use those terms. So you should get used to the terms of oppressed and oppressors, but don't worry, they'll change the specifics for you so you understand which one you are a part of. All of that to push the cause, all of that to cause more fear. All of which what happens when a nation is no longer under God but presumes itself to be God. And when there is no God in that sense, there is only idolatry and that gets projected to be God or a God. And as we saw that last week, it only leads and always leads to affliction and oppression of some kind for some people. Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Ben Franklin. All of which to say that in all of humanity's history, that idea of kings and rulers and powerful people usurping the authority of God is the historical norm for humanity all throughout history. In our fallen, sinful world, there are examples over and over and over again throughout our history and humanity of what people have done and what that has led to. Forgetting the God who raises them up and puts them down. Forgetting the God who sets the foundation for what freedom and liberty is. Forgetting that that God of creation stepped into his own creation raising up a nation purposely to suppress his own people, that being of Egypt, and him subsequenting himself to step in to redeem that people of the promise, fulfilling his promise to Abraham in the process of all of that, to demonstrate what true freedom and liberty and ultimately the foundation of all of those things are worship of the one true God. That freedom we saw last week in Deuteronomy chapter 6 came with a warning label. The one that you don't tear off on the mattress and the pillow, right? That kind. Remember these things, Moses said. Remember the Lord your God. Remember him. That's the first. Don't forget. Teach these to your children. Teach the statutes of the Lord to your children. When you wake up, when you go by the wayside, in essence, all make it a part of your family life. Remember and teach them to your children. And don't take up the other idols from the other nations. Do that and you will understand the freedom I'm going to give you, the blessing that I will give you. You will be blessed beyond any other nation and all other nations in this world will come to you to see the unique difference that he is giving them and granting them. And what you see in Scripture, of course, in the Old Testament is the waxing and waning of that process. And we focused a little bit on Judges last week. It was based on whether they remembered God. And when they forgot, they were, and, they, and they're all in this process. You're either in ascension and worshiping the one true God and the blessings that follow from generation after generation. And then there's a generation that forgets. There was a generation in Egypt that it wasn't necessarily a bad thing until that generation, that king forgot Joseph, forgot all those things, and he enslaved the people. And for 400 years, God allowed that to happen. Personally, that just seems excessive to me, doesn't it? We haven't been a nation for that long. And all of that was self-inflicted because they 
didn't remember the warning label Moses gave them. And God's judgment was brought by the raising up of another nation, a nation that would have been insignificant or just totally out of, out of the, the realm that God would even do such a thing. And God's process seemingly hasn't changed, that process of waxing and waning, the decline that creates turmoil and convulsion and finger-pointing inside a society. And when a nation enters this process, you start to see the fractures of its institutions, of its imperfections, and pressure gets applied, and those fissures start to crack. And we remembered yesterday, 20 years ago, what took place and what began much of this that has led up to this point in our history. In fact, I remember at the church I was at that week after those planes flew into that building, random people just walked in and asked if they could pray. And just over the next of those, almost a month, it seemed like, just people that didn't belong to, that, to, to, to West, they just came in and, and needed a place to pray. It was a remarkable thing to watch and see. It was a point in which we were briefly united as a people, but it is evident to me that it no longer exists. What I believe was missing, and as important as that was at that time, what was missing, honestly, was an act of true repentance. It was an act of fear that something tragic was happening and the horrificness of that day and everything that has followed since then. But once fear abates and once the dark clouds of life seem to dissipate, we return seemingly to a life and we forget. And we fall into a deep slumber of forgetfulness about who God is and who we are as a nation. And so it's quite evident to me that this nation is no longer united under its founding principles and a new foundation is being applied and fear is one of those instruments being used. And during a process of fear and turmoil and uncertainty that you see in Scripture with Israel, like we shared last week and certainly in our day, it seems to be liberty and freedom and the things that you and I have enjoyed in this nation are on a nice edge. One in, war in which fear is just seemingly ever-present or being created. And so I'd like to address that. I won't get done today, but we'll begin anyway. And by the way, in light of those remarks of our president, there will be no vaccine checking at this church there will be none of that, as some churches in this country have begun to do. We will be open to faithfully worship before God, come what may. We have tried to communicate early on as Christians through this whole process. You and I as Christian people will give the grace and mercy we need to come to the conclusions and the decisions that you need to make all on your own. So wear a mask or don't. Get a vaccine or don't. We will not let the godless create a false and unnecessary dichotomy because we are one in Christ. I've also tried to communicate, I cannot live fearfully. I just can't do it through this process. And I also let you know that I would probably be, a, at some point, a dissident and it seems to me that we are getting closer to that, oddly enough. But I cannot live fearfully. I just cannot do it. 
And so the fight we possess as Christian people is just that. And Jacob mentioned that. The fight for unity in Christ. What all that he represents, what he has done, the work that he inserted himself to do on your behalf and mine, the sinful wretch that I am, that he would step into history to redeem someone like me, that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, bought us with his own blood to bring us to the Father, to redeem us, to make us holy, that same Father who is all in all and through all, Ephesians 4, 6 says, in which Paul repeats in Colossians that Christ is all in all. He is over all of it. And so therefore, there is no need to be fearful. Both of those texts, by the way, are nestled in the context of just that, being one in Christ. There is no distinction other than Him when you come to Him as a Christian. It is not your ethnicity, not your gender, not being slave or free, as Paul says, not vaccinated or unvaccinated, not your wealth or not any position that you possess. None of that matters. None of that stands when you come to the cross. The only thing is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that same Christ in Luke, but all through the Gospels, says this, don't worry, don't be anxious, don't be fearful. That, however, is a hard tall task, is it not? <laughs> I must confess to you that I am not in that place all the time. But I want to explore that with you. I came across a, a very old book, a Puritan preacher by the name of John Flavel. So this is 300 years old, a lot of these thoughts that he shared with his congregation because they were under extreme persecution as well back in the day. And in light of some of those conversations that I've had and I'm sure that you've had and had to, to wrestle with about what's transpiring to whether you can be gainfully employed or not and all the pressure that comes from that. I'd just like to follow up about where this leads to, this notion of idolatry as a nation is decline. And so I'll begin again with Isaiah, this reminder of stop regarding man. What account is he? He is dust. Isaiah goes on in chapter 8, he says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. That's the fear of man. And without Christ, that's all there is. This is one of the tactics that's constantly used because it works, doesn't it? It's a motivator. It may not be a very good one, but it does motivate. Why does it motivate? Well, 1 John gives us a little insight into that, 1 John 4, because this type of fear is tied to something. It's connected to something, and he says it's a form of punishment. That kind of fear, that's why that is, because there's punishment out there in the wings somewhere. Something is going to happen. But Isaiah continues to go on. He says, but the Lord of hosts, you shall... Honor him as holy. Let your fear and let him be your dread. It seems contradictory, and I want to spend some time clarifying the distinctions. He goes on to say, because you fear the Lord, in verse 14, he will become a sanctuary. In a sanctuary, there's no fear. He's becoming this for you. Honor him, glorify him, 
honor him, and you will be in a sanctuary. But he also says it will be a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling, both to the house of Israel, a trap and a snare to its inhabitants of Jerusalem. In other words, the gospel is offensive. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Just repeating the same thing, come to Christ, come to know who Jesus is, honor and fear him, that kind of fear, a godly fear, and you will be safe, you'll be in a sanctuary. Paul says the same thing to the Galatians in his proclamation of the gospel, in his traveling. Paul has been traveling all over Asia Minor, all over, he's going to end up in Rome, he's going to do this cycle three times. He says this, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? And here's the distinction. Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's the distinction. And so he helps us create two categories, if you will, of fear. Fear of man or fear of God. And I'd like us to, to, to work through some of these distinctions and how we overcome it, which I'm certainly we won't get to today. See, the worldly... Enemies of God, the unregenerate, fear man. They don't even fear God. They have no knowledge of who He is. It's just something that is just made up so those of us who apparently do can get through life as if we're just ignoring everything somehow. But the mature, healthy, strong Christian fears the Lord. And the new Christian, or maybe if you struggle in your faith, you still have this fear. You may be out of balance from time to time like I am from time to time. Too much fear of man and too little fear of God, in other words. That's one category to, to wrestle with. Another is this. There's another effect to produce fear, and that effect is sin, the sin in my own life. The consequences, the guilt, the shame, all of those things has to do with punishment. Sin can produce that in your life. Again, 1 John 4, fear has to do with punishment, but whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You're still wondering, is God going to bring the hammer? Is something else going to happen? Is the other shoe going to drop? There is a fear of God which comes, but it comes in the means of His grace and mercy to you, and that is found only in the person of Jesus Christ. It is found only at the cross. That's what the other half of that verse refers to in 1 John 4. There is no fear in love. When you experience Jesus Christ, all that dissipates. That's the sanctuary. It's this safe harbor for you and for me. The harbor being Christ. It is your love of God, the love of the interest that he's given you. He has taken out your sinful nature and given you a new nature. You are a new creation, Paul says. And it is that love of God, the love of his interests, not your own, that are key to this and understanding this. In other words, to die to self. And how did Paul define that? Every morning he said, I die daily. That was his process. I have to jettison my selfishness, my ambitions, all those things, anything that would be a front to God's interest. I have to die to my own to take up my cross and follow him, to have a renewed mind. The reason for that is because under the category of the fear of God, there are other ways to fear. There is a godly way and righteous way, and there is an ungodly way to fear Him. 
And I'll give you the example once again if you go back to the Old Testament and the Exodus when God is bringing the nation of Israel out. He is liberating this nation. He is fulfilling his promise in his own time and in his own way. And they come to Mount Sinai. The people are gathered all around at the base of the mountain and the Lord comes down. There is fire, there is smoke, there is lightning, there are noises and things that they never heard before. Things they had never seen. And they are afraid of what's going to happen to them. It's like Adam when he had sinned. What did he do? I heard you, Lord, and what? I ran and hid. Punishment. There's a threat. Why? Because he was convicted because he knew what he had done. He was afraid, so he ran. We saw that in Mark chapter 4 when Jesus is putting him, everybody, we're going to the other side in a boat. Storm comes up and they're bailing water like crazy because they're afraid of dying. It is real. It's not anything to pretend that it doesn't exist in our life. And yet Moses, when he comes to the people, he says this in Exodus 20, verse 20, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And it seems like there's a contradiction. Wait, am I supposed to be afraid or am I not supposed to be afraid? Which one is it? And that's the distinction that has to be made. There's a good way to fear God in an ungodly way. And you and I must understand both. The ungodly fear is to see God as a threat to come to understand him that is about mere punishment. It's why Adam ran. Why did he run? What was the promise God gave him? If you eat this, what's going to happen? You'll surely die. What was he afraid of? Death. He hadn't quite apparently understood or, or comprehended or it wasn't revealed to him yet the mercy and love that God had for him. He was just expecting to die. And that ungodly fear sees God as a threat, just mere punishment. In other words, it's hazardous to your well-being, your person. And if that is all there is, if that's all your understanding about who God is, that is a misrepresentation about God's character. It's to create an idol in your own mind that God is like this, and then to make that determination. And this, quite frankly, to me, happens seemingly a great deal in our culture. The definitions that we import on God and then say he's like this. God is like this or this or that. And if he's like that, there's no way I could ever worship a God. How could you? Have you had those gospel conversations? And we purposefully misrepresent the character of God and demand that he is like this. Therefore, I couldn't worship a God like that. What's the key to that conversation? If, if he is, there's no need for if when it comes to God's character. You can actually know his character. Knowing God's true character and not letting that be misrepresented in those conversations. Because quite frankly, if you were to have that conversation and someone would say that, maybe you could respond, you know, in, in some of those moments when I'm thinking about that and trying to process this as quickly as possible. You know something? You're right. If God was actually like what you just described him as, I wouldn't want to worship him either. <laughs> but you know something? 
He's nothing like that. You have misrepresented him. You have mischaracterized the nature and character of God. Would you like to know what his true character is like? See, that type of fear doesn't take into account God's grace, his mercy, his glory. It is only about your self-preservation. And that's what happened to the nation of Israel. And I believe it's still true today. You and I may go through the motions of worship. We may be a member of a church. We may be the chosen people like Israel. But even in those moments, they still continued to serve idols They went through all the gyrations, they made all the sacrifices, they did all the right things externally, but never repented. The sin and rebellion still remained in their heart, and Jesus spoke of that. He said, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And he was quoting that from Isaiah 29, verse 13. See, godly fear, on the other hand, comes from seeing God's glory and his judgment. It's all together. Perfect love casts out all fear. This is the admonition to fear the Lord in Christ. This is the admonition to honor and respect this adoration of who God is, that he is the creator of the universe, that he is above all, this nation, all the nations of the world. He has established them. He raises them up. He puts them down. He's in control of all of it. He's in control of everything that is happening in this nation, everything that just happened in Afghanistan, all these things, 9-11, all of it. It all goes to his feet. And that type of fear of honoring him only can come through Jesus Christ. It only comes at the foot of the cross. It only comes through faith in him. Knowing that he paid your price. He redeemed you. He paid your debt, the punishment that you rightly deserve. He is your atoning sacrifice. So you need not fear when you are in him. It is that fear that Moses said will keep you from sinning. And please don't misunderstand or confuse. That doesn't make you perfect in that sense. That you, once you are a Christian, that you never, you just have this all of a sudden this perfection. I have so many conversations like that, that, that let's be honest, we're sin, we're sinful people, we continue to do so. But it's this maturing process that God gives. The sanctification scripture talks about. And in the New Testament, when you sin, he says, you have Jesus as your benefactor. He's the lawyer. That's the idea, this idea of a court. You, you have this mediator between you and God that forgives, that continues to forgive you through his sacrifice. The gospel doesn't stop in your life. It's not a one-time event when you come to Christ. It will carry you all the way through right to eternity. It's that fear that keeps you from sinning. The honor you have for the Lord, the unity that you see in Christ, the unity of this church, to know that this oneness, the oneness that Jacob talked, if you've never gone on a mission trip, it's remarkable. I have lots of stories, but it doesn't matter. But every one of them correlate to what he just said. If you've gone to another country, I may not understand the language, but as soon as I hear a song, I know exactly where that comes from. As soon as they open the scripture, I know exactly what's going on, what they're referring to. It's that unity in Christ is the only thing that makes that happen. It's the only thing that unifies like that. It's a remarkable, wonderful thing to be a part of and see. 
It's this godly fear that drives your soul to love what God loves and hate what God hates. That is something that is, I believe, stark contrast to those in Christendom where we all call themselves Christians. Well, we just have to love people, you know. Just love people. But if you don't define what love is, that's a problem. Because in Christ, you don't get to keep on sinning. You don't just get to go, hey, God loves me, and I can just go do whatever I want. Paul addresses that in Romans. Shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? What's the affirmative answer? No. (laughs) And he follows it up. You have died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? In other words, it's not this lifestyle. It's not this get-out-of-jail-free card. That's not the intent of the gospel. And so if you're a believer, you will love the things God loves and hate the things God hates out of fear and honor for Him. Charles Spurgeon saw these two distinctions, and I just want to read a quote from him. He's a really good preacher. He says this, To a believing heart, God is all purity. His light is as the color of the terrible crystal of which Ezekiel writes. And that, by the way, is Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 22, if you'd like to read it. His brightness is so great that no man can approach into it. We are so sinful that when even we get a glimpse of this divine holiness, we are filled with fear and we cry with Job, I have heard of thee, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the kind of fear which we have need to cultivate, for it leads to repentance, confession of sin, the aspiration after holiness, and the utter rejection of self-complacency and self-conceit. You hear the distinction? Three marks of godly fear. The good kind. The kind we're supposed to have. Repentance and confession of sin. When sin enters my life, when sin enters your life, it should be quick. The Holy Spirit has empowered you to, to recognize when that comes into my life. David wants a clean heart. Renew in me a clean heart. Let your Holy Spirit shine this brightest light, this bright light he's referring to, into my life. See if there's any wicked way in me. Get it out so it can be confessed. James refers to that as well. Confess your sins one to another. He is faithful and just to forgive. This remarkable thing happens when you get past the fear of what other people think. And so I am quick to say how, like Paul, I am above all the chief of all sinners to you. I am not perfect in any measurable way whatsoever. But when you confess your sin to someone faithful that's close to you, it loses all its power. Nothing is, it's not hidden anymore. It loses everything about, it's in the open. Scary at first. Hard maybe to wrestle with because what will they think? I know what God thinks because I know what he's done. I know what he's done to me and for me. And that's what matters. It's faith in Jesus Christ. It's understanding that's the means of which we come to Christ to repent, to confess our sin. And he is faithful and just to forgive. Do you believe the promise? It's those aspirations once you are new in Christ to live holy before him. 
that is your personal holiness, that God has taken you right where you were. You don't clean yourself up beforehand. You don't try to be good enough and then come to church. There's none of that that takes place. It's the recognition that apart from Jesus Christ, I am dead in my sin. I have zero hope. I should fear everything at that point. But in Christ, there is no need because his promise is true and he's the one who will do the cleaning up in our life, yours and mine. He is the one who makes us holy. Your personal holiness isn't pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and gutting it out in this life. He empowers you with the Holy Spirit to do so. He empowers you to live for Him. And that's the rejection of all self-conceit. I have no inhibitions in recognizing exactly what I deserve and why I deserve it. And yet He loves someone like me. (laughs) Someone like you. To save. To know Christ that way and to know his character. There is no need for fear of any kind and anything that man will dole out in this life. And before we knew Christ, we were all lovers of ourselves and haters of God. That's our nature. That is, in a way, a definition of our sinful nature. But in Christ... We now love God and hate self. We surrender, we submit to his word that he's revealed to us in his character to pursue him, to pursue the things he likes, to pursue in ways that glorify him. And yet we like Israel and the Christians before us, the Christians, many who founded this nation, are prone to lose sight of that character, God's character, especially when outside forces start pressuring in a particular direction, or when suffering comes, when those moments of fear just flood your soul. But in those moments of uncertainty, those moments, whether somehow seemingly random or by governing authorities purposefully creating fear, the response needs to be the same. You and I must keep our eyes fixed on the character of God and incline our hearts to live for Him no matter what. To have the conviction, the fortitude to serve and do what pleases Him and reject what He rejects. When you and I see God Almighty, Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God, His wisdom, His wisdom that is infinitely beyond man's, His love demonstrated at the cross, when you see that as eternal, when you see that as His love for you, you and I can stand and face whatever fear comes our way and not only face it, but be victorious over it. I don't want to just go through life and kind of, you know, suck this thing out and and try to just do the best I can. I'm not wired that way either. I like to win. (laughs) I want to be victorious over this. Now we have in our minds what that means, what that looks like. But ultimately, I want to be victorious in Christ, whether that means I have to suffer or not, whether I get blessed, and we are certainly. But if there's something that's coming that's out there somewhere for this nation, for this, is, this place, this church, this community, whatever, I want to be faithful to that. I want to be victorious in that, to have the conviction and the fortitude, no matter what comes 
I can't imagine the early Christians enjoying what took place. I can't imagine when Jesus said, hey, the temple's going to be destroyed. And when you see that happening, don't go down to get anything, just run. Do you suppose that put fear when he told that to the early church, knowing he was not going to be here? And by the way, pray that women aren't pregnant and it's not in winter because they're going to have an awful time getting out. That would generate some fear, I would think. But you and I can be victorious. You and I have been called to be victorious. And even death is not going to win. And so you and I are obliged to have this eternal perspective that even at this moment, you are living eternity in Christ. You're just living it here. That's all. This is a stopping point for your eternity. And God has gifted you and me to live it in the fullness that we can, to have life and life more abundant and free. Yes, that is salvation, but it includes this life too, doesn't it? <laughs> it includes the joy of, of, of you know, a new baby from Gen and Jared, my own new baby grandson. It includes those wonderful things about being a mom, a dad, all those things, but it also includes the hard things in life that we really want to shy away from. It includes all of those things, but in all of those things, Christ is all and in all, and I can have victory over fear. It can be done. So having said that, even the strongest of us are not without fear or without any fears. And again, when Jesus spoke to his people about the temple coming, I would imagine that would cause some consternation and worry. The early church's persecution and what, how God used that, the fear that, would, that caused them to, to move. They left their homes and were moved to Judea, to Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. You and I, by the way, are the result of that. We are, in America, the uttermost parts in that context when that was written. And so we have to be clear on the distinctions, but we also need to be clear on what kind of fear we're talking to and referring to and how we can overcome that. But we're going to save that till next week. Let's pray.